This is a very limited deal. I just found out today we're trying to get them for the 4th of July, because that's on a Sunday. We got, I think, 60 tickets to the T-Bone game that night. If you want to go to the T-Bone game, we're going to have fireworks there afterwards. So we'll have them sign them up Thursday night and Sunday. First 60, go. All we could get. All right. I told you guys first because you're special. <laughs> Well, last time, um, last time we came through, and now you're seeing where we're really getting. I'm going to use this term; it's not the correct term, but it's the one that bogged down in church history. We're not bogged down because we're not doing anything. We're bogged down because there's so many components of church history, and this is what you get into. If church history goes fairly smoothly uh, up to about well, when you get into the Dark Ages, and then many, many things start happening. For me, when I remember church history, and I hope that you can, uh, you can do this too, uh, I basically remember my church history based around, oh, seven or eight major events. Uh, church history is so hard to remember all of the details, um, so you've got to get a system. And for me, the system is, is the main points down through uh, the history of the church that are the key points, and we've hit all of those. And I think we've looked at four of them now, and we're going to look at the fifth one tonight. And, of course, the first one, we remember, was going back with, uh, with Origen and his influence in corrupting the, the manuscripts. That would be your first one. You want, to, you want to tie in the manuscripts up into Origen and, and then make Origen your first thing you remember because that's where they get corrupted. Second aspect you want to remember would be uh, Constantine. And uh, that basically consists of everything about Constantine coming to power and what he did in 325 and what he changed. That's very, very important. The third thing would be uh, when Charlemagne, uh, uh, Charles the Gross, or 800 A.D., Christmas Day, uh, he unites the uh, pagan Roman church with the uh, government of Rome. And that's a very key area. Then the next one was the Crusades themselves, and that's what we just finished. And the Crusades are a very crucial thing in time. Now, not only are these crucial, let me explain this to you. Not only are these things crucial to understand, but they're really crucial to understand the biblical way. Because if you, everybody in history talks about these, but if you don't understand it from the Bible standpoint, nice shirt, Steve, if you don't understand it from the Bible standpoint, you're going to miss the whole point. You can take these points of history that we've talked about and we're going to continue to look at, define them biblically, and boy, you got it. You got it. So all of these things you want to look at, these uh, four things you want to look at and understand them as I've laid them out, not as they appear in history. And then, of course, the fifth thing is what we're going to look at tonight, and that is the Reformation. For me, I think personally, the Reformation... Uh, does more for me putting history in perspective than any other single thing in church history. The Reformation, just like the Crusade, just like Constantine, just like uh, uh, Origen, is, is, there's probably more written on it than any other subject in church history. And 99.999% of it is completely wrong. And for you to understand church history and really get this thing down, you have to understand not what the Reformation is, you got to get that. 
But you really, first thing you got to do is understand what the Reformation isn't. That's the key. And, uh, and that's the key. And so we're going we're gonna to tackle the Reformation tonight. Uh, I don't know if we'll get through it all. There's so many components to it. But it is absolutely your fifth thing that we want to look at here. And uh, to me, this is, this is the single greatest period in church history, um, yet it's grossly misunderstood. Now, let me give you some background. I think it's very, very, very. Last time we saw the corruption of the papal office, we saw the corruption of the popes, and we saw all of that. But now, before we really look at the Reformation, we need to look at the background of what was happening that really was the thing that brought about the Reformation. That's as important as seeing the Reformation itself. Because as we study church history from the Bible standpoint, and we're about to enter into with the Reformation, we're about to enter into the greatest period in church history, which is we know as the Philadelphian Church Age, which starts around 1500, uh, 1600 in there, which, and you've heard me say it many, many times, without a doubt, the greatest period in church history and the one that demands our focus to learn so many things about where we're at and what we need to be doing. And we see what is called uh, in history the Reformation. And this is a time when Rome really just about goes out of business. And uh, it's a time that, that most writers of it, most writers, all writers of it, for the sake of, a, of just a few, never really understand what the Reformation is. And the Reformation is a time where the Holy Spirit of God does an end run and kicks the door wide open for the worldwide evangelism of a King James 1611 authorized version. The thing that's so important about the Reformation, I think this is the thing I really like about it for my own personal time, everything is coming to a head here. <clears throat> you have a number of things that are colliding during this particular time that explodes into the Philadelphian church age. And I think that's probably the best assessment of it uh, in, in understanding it. And, uh, but before we get to that time period itself and the men who uh, lived in this time period who were the key players in it, well, let's examine the situation in Europe uh, and better understand what helped bring about this thing called the Reformation. The first thing that happened, and we've talked about some of this before, but now we're going to put it into a context. The first thing that happened uh, was the failure of the Crusades. Uh, you know, you find that anytime there is a major disaster, that people are open to change. And that's true of just about anything that you ever get into in your life. Whenever a big disaster hits someplace, people are open and welcome to change, and that's a great time to get the gospel in. Well, there wasn't anything more devastating and more of a failure than the Crusades. And after the defeat of the Catholic Church and Pope Urban and his boys by the Turks, many people who fought and survived or many people who just went through that period of time were, were disillusioned by, by it and by the Roman Empire. I mean, we had the two factors. God wills it, got, got kicked around by it is the will of Allah. And um, all the claims that there was going to be a holy war called by God, that God was going to fight for them like he did for Israel, became pretty embarrassing. No, no oceans parted. No fire, thunder, lightning came down from heaven. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church got slaughtered. And the Crusades were a dismal failure. And the Roman Catholic Church never accomplished anything close to what it tried to accomplish. And it was pretty embarrassing when God didn't come through 
based on the man who was supposed to speak ex cathedra, and whatever he said was the voice of God. And in the whole melee of the thing, Allah won. <laughs> it didn't look very good. At the same time, the men who returned from the faraway lands had seen the different cultures, the beauty of the people, the lands they visited. They brought back things that called silk that nobody had ever seen before. They saw things that, that they, they didn't even imagine existed because the, this was against totally against all that they had been taught uh, because the Roman Catholic Church had told them that the rest of the world were just absolute stupid pagans, cavemen, who had no culture, who had no nothing, and the only real life was the Roman Catholic life. Well, when they got out to the crusade, they saw that that wasn't true. Many of them brought back stories and brought back uh, uh, things that they had seen there and done there, and they realized that... Uh, uh, that the Roman Catholic Church had lied to them. And, of course, that's what all totalitarian systems do. And that's really what the Roman Catholic Church is. It is the totalitarian system by which all totalitarian systems are built from. And you're going to find that uh, uh, the totalitarian system is simply where all the big guys are on the top and all the masses are on the bottom. And uh, you're going to find that Lenin did follow that. You're going to find that Stalin followed that. You're going to find that uh, yeah, Hitler followed that. Mussolini followed that. You're going to find that uh, Louis XIV followed that. You're going to find that Napoleon followed that. And, of course, all of those men are good Roman Catholics. And Castro today, down in Cuba, uh, wherever you go, the totalitarian system is simply a system by which all the big guys are on the top and all of everybody else on the masses are on the bottom. And they're always Roman Catholic when you find them. I don't know of any. Chavez, Roman Catholic. Down in South America, Argentina, all Roman Catholic. Everywhere you go. And, of course, uh, uh, they were not fooled anymore. And uh, many of them uh, were very disillusioned. The people were tired. Uh, the second thing is the people were tired, and we talked about this last week. The people were tired of the corruption of the Roman Catholic popes uh, and the priests. Many towns had kept uh, 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 houses of prostitution for the priests so they would let their wives and daughters and even their sons alone. Not, not only all of the ungodliness that we uh, had earlier talked about, but the Roman Catholic Church during the 1200s and the 1300s had a big three-way split going. Sylvester III, Benedict IX, and Gregory VI had all claimed themselves to be pope. Each one of them had excommunicated the other two, and called himself the vicar of Christ and called the other two the Antichrist. If that wasn't enough, uh, the Holy Papa, uh, with all of the Roman Catholic Church, some of the kings began to give him some problems. And uh, one of the issues that came up uh, was uh, in England's uh, King Henry VIII. And uh, this is where, to me, it, it starts to get very interesting. Henry VIII was the king of England. And Henry VIII... Uh, at this time, as was the uh, uh, England, was Roman Catholic. And uh, Henry VIII, as they all have do back then, they had, uh, had a marriage between, uh, you know, the king of this country marries the daughter of the king of this country, and then they form an alliance, and the marriage is the alliance and all that stuff. Well, Henry VIII had married Catherine of Spain. And, uh, but after a period of time, uh, she has a child, and that child is a, is a girl. And uh, no king wanted a girl uh, to be the firstborn. He wanted to have a son by which uh, uh, that could take over the throne. 
And so uh, he gets disillusioned with uh, Catherine of Spain and falls out of love with her. And then he, he meets another woman that he falls in love with, and her name is Anne Boylan. And so what he wants to do is he wants to get a divorce from Catherine so he can marry Anne. But getting a divorce was no easy matter back in that period of time in the 1500s because only the Pope could grant a divorce. So Henry VIII comes to the point where uh, uh, he goes to the Pope and tries to get the Pope to give him a uh, divorce from Catherine of Spain, but the Pope refuses to do that. And that Pope was Clement VII, and uh, his problem is, underneath the surface here, that he's involved too much with Charles V of Spain. He had an alliance going with Charles V of Spain. Remember we talked about the Inquisition where they were killing? That Inquisition started in Spain. Charles V was doing some good things for the Pope, and the Pope was not going to uh, burn his bridges with him uh, just so Henry VIII could have another woman, and so he would not do that. Well, needless to say, Henry is heartbroken, as we must imagine, and he's crushed that his, his divorce has been denied. And uh, he's having a tough time with it, but about that time, uh, his prime minister, whose name is a very good name to remember in church history, Thomas Cromwell. Thomas Cromwell was his prime minister at the time, and uh, Thomas kind of made uh, uh, fun of, of, of Henry over the letting the holy papa run the king. And so Henry got mad. And uh, Henry realized that uh, if he wanted to be, uh, if he wanted to get a divorce, and the Pope was the only one that could get a divorce, gee, what would you do? So what he did was, is he left the Roman Catholic Church, started his own church, which we know now, and then you want to mark this down because this is the next church that we see split, and uh, Henry VIII starts what we know as the Church of England. And the Church of England, sometimes it's called in America the Anglican Church. Sometimes it's called the Episcopal Church. But in essence, it's all the same. It's the Church of England. That church was started by Henry VIII. And this is the importance to understand how this thing works. Because uh, here you have a situation where uh, that uh, uh, if you're a member of the Anglican Church, and you're a member of the Church of England. And if you go to England, the Church of England is everything, man. I mean, that is the state religion over there. I mean, they've got Westminster Abbey. They've got the, uh, all of the things over there in, the, in St. Uh, uh, Paul's Cathedral uh, and all of that. And, and it's all an incredible deal. And yet uh, they have adopted much of the Roman Catholic system. Uh, and they would basically be a, a Western branch of the Roman Catholic Church as we look at it today. A lot of formalism, formalism a lot of uh, things that go on. They have vicars and all that stuff just like everybody else. It's much just like the Roman Catholic Church. But here's a church, and this is the point of understanding church history. How much credibility would you put in the Church of Jesus Christ if the Church of Jesus Christ started because... The guy wanted to get a divorce from his wife to marry somebody else, couldn't get it, so he starts his own church and therefore sets it up for the sole purpose of honoring and glorifying God, winning the world to Christ, fulfilling the Great Commission? No, not at all. So he'd get a divorce from one and marry another. And, of course, people don't stop and think about that today because people don't know anything about history. The greatest joke in the world would be a member of a church of England or an Anglican church or Episcopal church 
taking anything that anybody says seriously when you understand that the foundation of that church was based on King Henry VIII wanting to get a divorce uh, from, his, uh, from his wife so he could marry another. But that's what he did. And he starts the Church of England and sets himself up as the head of that new church in 1534. Well, obviously, you know now what that all means. That simply means that uh, he can uh, give himself a divorce, and that's what he did. And uh, later, Queen Mary, uh, which we know as Bloody Mary, uh, came to the English throne and tried to bring the church back to Rome. She reigns five years, and then she gets her head cut off, and then Elizabeth takes over. Uh, and I think this is important. I think this is what you follow me through on this. Now, let me show you how God does this. Because this is exactly what you got to see and how this thing works. And this is God behind the scene. This is God taking the foolishness of man. And this is so important. This is why I love this period of time. This is so important to be able to see this. Now, Henry VIII marries Catherine of Spain. We know that. He has a child, one child. That child is a girl. That child is Mary Tudor, who becomes in time after Henry VIII dies, Mary, Bloody Mary. And she's called Bloody Mary because when he broke from the Roman Catholic Church and started the Church of England, Mary, remember now, Mary's mother was Roman Catholic Catherine of Spain. She gets to the throne. She tries to bring England back to the Roman Catholic Church. Hence, she's called the Bloody Mary. And she, she kills just about anybody, anybody, everybody who is anti-Roman Catholic. So she was something else. But now watch how this thing works. She runs five years, and then they lead a revolt, and she gets her head cut off. Now, when Henry dumped Catherine, he married Anne Bolin. 1533. Her child that he has also is a girl, and that didn't work for him, so he had Anne killed. But her daughter, very important that you understand this, her daughter is Elizabeth. And Elizabeth becomes the greatest queen that Israel ever, or Israel, that England ever had, uh, other than probably main Queen Victoria. And there would be a real toss-up between the two. But Elizabeth is is a, is a key player here because she is the one who, uh, who brings it back and really opens up the door for, uh, for James I. And now he marries next, uh, after he kills Anne, we've got to follow this, he marries Jane Seymour, who does bear him a son, and then she gets killed. And uh, that son is Edward, who also becomes the king of England. So you begin to see how this thing, and then he marries three more times before he finally dies. And so you begin to see how God behind the scenes is bringing about, through the stupidness of man, uh, behind the scenes. And boy, no, you, you got to see this. And this is why I take such great pains in study, teaching church history, showing you all the behind the scenes stuff. Because that's where it's really at. And of course, the Reformation is that same way. And so when Henry VIII sets himself up of the new church in 1534, later Queen Mary, after him, becomes daughter of Catherine, came to the English throne and tried to bring the church back to Rome. She reigns five years, as I said, and then she gets her head cut off in Elizabeth, who's the daughter of Anne Boleyn. 
And uh, there's been a lot of movies about that. If you uh, ever saw the movie, uh, the old movie with Errol Flynn, The Seahawks, uh, you know, uh, they made a lot of stories about that and how that he was a sailing guy and uh, England didn't have a, a navy and, and uh, you know, Elizabeth was on the throne and she kind of liked him. I think she liked a little monkey he had on his shoulder. But anyway, but it's a thing where it's a, it's a, all that stuff was built around that. And uh, she takes over the Church of England and, uh, and, and it's been, uh, been that way ever since. And the Church of England, for a time during the Reformation, really became a decent organization for just a short period of time. But we'll talk about that, too. But uh, all this turmoil in the Roman Catholic Church that's going on here, it, it didn't help them. It hurt them. And uh, it brought the people to a point where they cried out for reform. And then a third thing that took place, and this is very important, too. These are things you've got to get. But you don't have to get them from the history standpoint. You've got to get them from my standpoint, from behind the scenes. The third thing that was really important was the Renaissance period. And the Renaissance, I'm not talking about the one at Excelsior Springs. I'm talking about the real one. The Renaissance starts about 12 or 1300 in Italy. Now, the word Renaissance means rebirth of knowledge. Now, this is what you got to see and understand. The devil knew what was coming. He knows that he can only ride the world and people in the world so long and get mileage out of them before they run out of gas. When I mean they run out of gas, I mean they corrupt themselves to the paint that they collapse. You see it with every government, the, the Gentile government. Look at every one of them. Syria, Babylon, Egyptians, uh, the Greek Empire, even the Roman Empire, the old Roman Empire. You know what happened to every one of them? They started out great. They conquered the world. And then you know what happened? They got so incestuous with all the godless filth that they were doing and all of the things that were happening that they got so absolutely uh, debauched in everything that they did that in time, their moral decay decayed the whole country and the whole thing collapsed. Every Gentile nation did that. And America is, is on its way to that. The only thing that ever kept the Gentile nation from doing that was them embracing the Word of God. And you know as well as I do that there was only two nations that did that outside the nation of Israel, Gentile nations. One was England, and the other one is the United States. And when England dumped the book, we saw what happened to her. And the World War II, England, who was the greatest nation on the face of this planet for 400 years. At the end of World War I, she's in trouble. At the end of World War II, she's a catastrophe. She, is, she won World War II, but she's absolutely bankrupt at the end of World War II. She spent every dime that she's had fighting the Nazis and the Japanese in the Pacific, and she's completely broke, she's completely bankrupt, and there isn't 20 bucks in the coffers of England. And she's absolutely never regained anything from it from the world power. You know, you read all the history books, it'll talk about all the circumstances that put her under. One thing put her under. She was the greatest power in the face of this planet as long as she held that book that you got in front of you tonight. The moment she dumped it, God dumped her. America's the same way. And of course, those are the issues that we, we have to look at behind the scenes. The Renaissance, basically the devil knew what was happening. Now, notice the name of the Renaissance, Rebirth of Knowledge. Here's what the devil did. 
The devil knew that the Philadelphian church age was about to crack wide open. He knew that the Roman Catholic Church, he had rode her as far as he could, and she was about to go under. He knew the moment that the Roman Catholic Church went under, that the Word of God, the true Word of God, would come to the surface, and where for 1,500 years the lights were out when Rome in control, the moment Rome was gone and the Word of God came back, the lights would come back on. He knew that. He knew that. He knew that. So he brings about a fake rebirth in the Renaissance to counter the real rebirth that's coming spiritually in a Reformation. Did you all get that? Don't miss that point in history. I'll say it again. The Reformation, excuse me, the Renaissance was nothing more than the awakening of the knowledge of the world around the average individual. Much of the rebirth had to do with the crusades and the things that were brought back which fired the imagination. In reality, the Renaissance was nothing more than a rebirth of pagan, Roman, and Greek philosophy and ideas. It was the fake rebirth around man that the devil put in first to take the edge off the, the Reformation that was going to be the spiritual rebirth of the world. And that's all it was. We're going to look at it in detail here in a second. It was basically a fake rebirth. It's just like before the real second coming of Christ right here, you have the, you have the fake first, second coming of Christ right here. Everything in that Bible, the devil does first. But we know from the Bible that it's never the first one, is it? It's always the second one because you must be born again. So when people look at history and they see the Renaissance and they say, you know, that Renaissance means rebirth of knowledge or rebirth of knowledge, yeah, uh, they come to the thing that they put it into a worldly context and say, wow, that was really great. But if you're a Bible believer and you know the hand of God and the plan of God, you see the Renaissance as the fake rebirth that the devil puts to the world because the devil knows the real one's coming when the Reformation hits. That's incredibly important. Absolutely incredible important. And of course, um, along with that, we have the invention of things that move this thing along. In 1454, the printing press is invented. Now the things uh, can be put out more quickly. Good things and bad things. I mean, now the crimes of Rome and and the things that the Pope are doing can be spread faster. The Bible is now in the, print, in the printing press. The first thing that was printed on the printing press was the Bible. It can be spread more easily, and everybody can know it. The Renaissance is a very complex thing, but I'm going to break it down for you in three or four areas of rebirth and make it easy for you. Now, the first aspect of the rebirth in this thing would be in literature, things that people write. You're going to find that... This is where we go back to what we call the classical writings. William Shakespeare, 1564 to 1616. He's certainly the one that most people know, though there was several others. But he's an English poet and writer. He writes 38 plays, 154 sonnets, and many, many poems. And of course, uh, he's best known for his production of Hamlet, King Lear, and Macbeth. And uh, he is, he is, his writings are considered the classics today. 
Everything in his writings, as with everything in all of these writings, is against the Word of God. There's not one thing in him that's constructive toward anything that God is doing, done. It refocuses man in his mind back to himself. That's what it does. Dante is another great writer during this time. He lives around 1265. He writes a cute little story of getting a tour of the underworld by Virgil and Beatrice. He meets some of the popes down there and fellowships a while and then heads back home for supper. I mean, it's a little deal that you can even buy today called Dante's Inferno. And uh, when Dante, you remember I told you that when Dante went to Rome, uh, he was greatly uh, influenced by Rome in a bad way, and he made the statement that the Pope should be condemned to the lowest part of hell, and he was an unsaved man. We have a guy by the name of, of Boccato, B-O-C-C-A-C-C-I-O, 1313 to 1375. His main claim to fame within a Renaissance period is he writes classic dirty books without pictures. Uh, he, his, his, his work, the De Carrion, is basically the first edition of Playboy. And he writes everything from a secular, sexual side of things, uh, as much of them do. You have a guy by the name of, I'm not going to pronounce this right, I'll just spell it, P-E-T-R-A-R-C-A, 1304 to 1375. He's called the first modern man. He writes sonnets and songs. He writes... And, uh, and rebels uh, against the Greek literature, and he loved Plato. We see the introduction going back again to the, to the philosophers. And in time, we're going to see where this really leads to the humanistic, uh, humanism and all of the stuff that destroys Europe a little bit later on. But, uh, but these are the guys that write during this period of time. I don't have time to, tonight to take you through uh, uh, the development of music. But the development of music is one of the greatest studies you'll ever, you'll ever study, and the greatest period of music from the world standpoint uh, would be the Renaissance period. And, of course, the uh, music, when it starts out, starts out with Mozart, Haydn, and those guys, and they write their songs that glorify God. By the time we get, and that's before the Renaissance period, time we get into the Renaissance period, they're writing songs that glorify man. By the time we get to the uh, next stage uh, of that, they're writing songs about demonic things and uh, Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries. Those are demons, Sorcerer's Apprentice, uh, all of that stuff. And then by the time you get into what is commonly called the naturalistic movement, which takes place in the 1900s, man and his music has been relegated to, to animalistic concepts. And so that's where you have the bunny hop uh, the dog, whatever, you know, I, I don't know. You know what I'm talking about. But that's where it goes. We don't have time to get into all that. That's a great study in itself. I could spend four weeks on music. The next one is art. And you'll find the great artist during this period of time, Michelangelo, 1475 to 1564. Um, he does the St. Peter Cathedral. He also does the statue of David and Moses. He painted the Last Judgment. Uh, there's talk about the fact that he was, he was, a, he was a homosexual. It's going to be proven one way or the other. 
but uh, uh, he comes to the point where he is a, uh, his art always glorifies the nudity, the male nudity and everything that he does. And uh, you have Leonardo da Vinci and uh, 1452 to 1519. He paints the famous Mona Lisa, The Last Supper. And it's interesting <clears throat> to notice that, you know, when we get caught up into the things like the da Vinci Code, <clears throat> which <clears throat> swarmed across America here a couple of years ago, it's typical how, how stupid God's people are. And uh, everybody looked at the Last Supper that Leonardo da Vinci, and that's where you got the name, the Da Vinci Code. Everybody looked at the Last Supper that he painted <clears throat> and saw that, that the one sitting next to Jesus, who would typically would be John, uh, everybody suddenly discovered it, it was a woman. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, and, and it, 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 the stupidity of people just overwhelmed me. <clears throat> I mean, they actually thought that... that that that, you know, that, that he had a, some kind of, I don't know, Polaroid of the Last Supper that he painted it off of or whatever. <clears throat> I mean, he had nothing. You know what he went on? Does anybody understand what Leonardo da Vinci went on when he painted when he painted the Last Supper and why he painted the way he did? He painted it that way because he is Roman Catholic through and through, and he had to get Mary in there someplace. So he takes one of the apostles, which Jesus loved, and he made her look feminine because he had to get Mary into it somehow. The very idea <clears throat> that, uh, that the Last Supper would be anything that would mean anything to anybody has to be ridiculous if you don't know your Bible. Christ, as everybody else in the painting, is pictured as a European. If you know Song of Solomon, you know that Christ did not have long, red, brown, flowing hair. His hair is black and, and, as a raven and bushy. Bible gives a very good description of him back in the Song of Solomon. It does not match up to the one that uh, Leonardo da Vinci uh, uh, painted of him. Those are typical <coughs> Roman Catholic conceptions. You come down the line and somebody wants to get a conspiracy theory going and they bring that old thing in about the Holy Grail, you know, and Christ having children and, and the line of Christ being somewhere today. And then you find that da Vinci, he puts a woman in there and everybody's going to bet that and they run with it. And the whole bottom line is nobody stopped and think that the reason why Leonardo da Vinci painted a woman in the Last Supper is because he's Roman Catholic and they had to put Mary somewhere in the painting. So that was a good spot to do it. Don't know your Bible? You can get in a lot of trouble. You have a guy by the name of Raphael, R-A-P-H-A-E-L. <clears throat> he, uh, 1483 to 1520. And he works on St. Peter's Cathedral and uh, the Sistine Madonna. I think that's the restroom, but he did painted the thing in there, I guess. I don't know. It's easy to see that the rebirth of learning is nothing more than going back to the pagan Greek and Roman system. You're going to find that when you look at it at this particular time, the emphasis is put on male and female nude bodies and male and female organs. And, of course, uh, the whole emphasis was put on man. This period will form later, as I said, the basis for the German ref uh, rationalism and humanism when it comes down the line. Plato and Aristotle are reintroduced and revived through the eyes of higher education with renewed interest. And it goes right back to what I told you Sunday in Colossians chapter 2, that God, uh, that philosophy is never conducive to Christianity. And philosophy will, and Christianity will never get together. Now, the other thing we see here is in architecture. 
there's about a, there's a theology in just about everything in Europe during this period of time, if you know your Bible. There's certainly a theology in architecture. Because as the Renaissance period moves on, it reinduces, like I said, reintroduces the Roman and Greek concept. So now all the buildings in this period look like the Roman and Greek buildings. They all have the Roman and Greek columns to them. Everything is built on that mindset. And you're going to find that the painters paint with an, uh, uh, when all their paintings, <clears throat> I mean, you go to Europe and you go through some of the uh, museum, art museums, and I've been in, in, in I've been in, in the, I think one of the greatest ones in is, is in Amsterdam, Holland. And, um, you know, you have, uh, have them in France and you have them in Germany and you have them just about every place. You're going to find that all the paintings during this period of time, whatever they're painting, they always have a Roman background to it because of that influence. And that's all a mark of the Renaissance period during that time. And uh, it's the same way with the sculptures. If you notice that the Greeks, they were famous for their nude male and nude female sculptures, Venus. And yet when we get to this period of time, you have the sculpture of David. Uh, and uh, all of these things are done in the Greek style, in the Roman style, uh, that was uh, during that period of time, back when the Greeks and the Romans. So the Renaissance has nothing to do with God. It has nothing to do with anything. <clears throat> but notice the world took the change and turned it back toward man. But the Renaissance and the reintroducing of new ideas and thinking was basically, from God's standpoint, and I'm going to give you a great verse here, was the plowed field or the plowed ground that the reformers were going to sow the seed of the Word of God on. Because what the Reformation did, even though the devil wanted to use it for his thing, what it did is it brought the upheaval in Europe that it needed that the seed of the gospel could be sown. Now, there's a great verse I want you to mark down here, and it's in Psalm 76. It's a tremendous principle. And it's something that you want to always remember. It's something that will help you figure a lot of things in history out, a lot of things in life out. It's Psalm 76.10, and it simply says this, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. That's a tremendous verse. That verse says that even the wrath of men, God takes it for his praise. We look at something like communism, and communism is a terrible thing. We don't, we had a cold war over communism. There was a time when all of Europe and all of the world, probably three-quarters of the world, had turned communist. And it was a threat to the free world as we thought it was. And yet you're going to find that during that period of time that the greatest Christians of that era was not the Christians in America, but the Christians behind the Iron Curtain uh, of, the, of the communists. Some of the greatest Christians that ever lived were Christians who lived under communistic rule. And uh, you get a book back there. I don't know if we have it in stock or we even carry it, but it's a book by, any book by Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee was a Chinese Christian pastor. Nobody knows what happened to Watchman Nee. The Chinese communists got him and probably tortured him and killed him. Nobody ever knows what happened to him. But before he disappeared and they got to him, he wrote several books. And uh, his books have an insight into the prayer life, into the things that go on, uh, that should go on in our lives way beyond what the average Christian. 
And it's a thing where, you know, uh, we saw it in the book of Acts when the Roman Empire was trying to wipe out Christianity at every turn. All that it did was help spread Christianity. We saw the Roman Catholic Church uh, through the Dark Ages. It marched down through history trying to wipe out and kill every Christian that it could. At the end of the Dark Ages, when the Reformation starts, uh, you know what? There's 100 billion Christians in Europe ready to go. And that verse is a great verse. It explains a lot of things in history and in life. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. We look at Adolf Hitler and what he did in World War II and killed everybody that he killed. I mean, how many, what, 100, 200 million people all total? And yet at the end of that thing, what do we find about it? What happened? What was the main goal out of that? We won, we defeated, we dropped the A-bomb, we got the atom bomb, we defeated the Russians? No. The greatest thing that happened out of that was in 1947, the Jews went back to the land. Without World War II, that had never happened. God uses the praise, uh, wrath of men for his praise. And of course, that's, that's what the whole concept that we talked about in Romans chapter 9 the fourth thing that happened was science. Up to this point, science was very limited because science was controlled by the Roman Catholic Church. Up to this point, the Roman Catholic Church was teaching that the earth was flat. And of course, uh, they, were, they were teaching that the earth was in the center of the universe and everything revolved around the earth. And of course, uh, the guy that disproved that was a guy by the name of Copernicus, 1473 to 1543. Copernicus was an astronomer, a Polish astronomer. And he refused to believe that the earth was the center of the universe, but taught was the earth was one of many planets that revolved around the sun. And of course, he's severely um, imprisoned and books are burned and the Roman Catholic Church, you know, hates him. Uh, but the bottom line is he was right. You have the Italian astronomer, Galileo. And of course, with Galileo, we find a real breakthrough, don't we? Because Galileo is the first guy who built the first telescope. And with that telescope, you know what he did? He confirmed that Copernicus' theory was correct. And uh, it's incredible. You had guys like Newton who found the law of gravity. And of course, um, they found that the earth was not flat, didn't they? Christopher Columbus couldn't find anybody to, to, uh, to finance him. You know why? Because they all thought it was foolhardy because they thought there was no way that you could sail to the, to the west and meet the east. And they wouldn't fund it because they were afraid you'd, it was a foolish venture, waste of money, going to fall off the end, the sea monsters are going to get you, and all that stuff that the Roman Catholic Church was teaching. And, of course, uh, we found out that wasn't true. And uh, we found out that you could get to the, get to the uh, east by traveling west. We found out that the earth was not flat. And of course, all of that added to it. I guess the single greatest thing that, that uh, brought about the Reformation in conjunction with everything else, the world was changing. The devil knew he was going to lose control through the Roman Catholic Church. But I think without a doubt, the thing that had more to do with the Reformation uh, and was fueled by the other things of change we mentioned uh, was the fact that Europe was just in on every street corner, in every hamlet, all across Europe, there were men standing out on the street declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
the witness of Christ was absolutely the most incredible thing that was going on in Europe during all these periods of time. And uh, Europe was absolutely filled with them. The Roman Catholic Church thought they were trying to wipe them out, but in essence, all they did was made them stronger. I guarantee you, if you lived back in the 14 or the 1500, there wasn't any place you couldn't go that somebody wasn't going to witness to you. They weren't afraid like we are today. Uh, they, weren't, uh, they weren't closet Christians like we are today. They were bold in their faith, and when you witness, you, you, know, you may just have somebody throw the track on the ground or you know, spit on it or call you a dirty name. When, when they witnessed on the street, there was a real chance that they would be executed and tortured for what they did. We talked about many of these guys, Henry of Lausanne, Lethard and Tackham of Flanders, Bruno, uh, Roger Bacon, Raymond Lilly, Hildebrandt, uh, Bathard of Romania, all great guys who their main trait was preaching on the street. And there was thousands, tens of thousands, on every street corner in every town in Hamlin in Europe, preaching the message that salvation was by grace, literally preaching the message that the Pope was the Antichrist, that the Roman Catholic Church was the great whore, Revelation chapter 17 and 18. I mean, uh, these street preachers did more than all the other things combined. In fact, it was the rebirth of knowledge that came, uh, that, that, uh, came by the lights coming on again with the preaching uh, of these men. And when this happens, and this is really the key, when the Roman, when, when all the world, and this is God working behind the scenes, keep in mind now, Roman Catholic Church had, uh, had, uh, had run the world for 1,500 years. The devil knows that that nation by which he has run it and that church is about to collapse. It's went too long, got too powerful, got too corrupt, and even though the devil has fed it and, and used it, it's like, uh, it's like a zombie taking over a human body. And a zombie is going to go kill people. But the body's dead. And the zombie takes over the body and the body goes. But you know what? As the zombie goes on for eight or nine or ten hours or a day or two, you know what happens? He's in it and he's making the body work. But what happens to the body? Starts to decompose. The zombie can use the body, but the zombie can't keep the body from decomposing. So he's been a zombie now for two or three days, and he's walking down the road looking for somebody to eat, and uh, he finally sees some gal out there, and he's going to kill her, you know, and he reaches out, and to grab her, and his arm comes off. And then he goes to chase her because she runs, and he falls down, and his leg comes off. His body is decomposing. The demon zombie in the guy is just fine, but the body he's using is wearing out. Why? Because it's dead, and it's corrupting itself, and that's exactly how we look at the Roman Catholic Church. The demons were the, were the force behind it. The Roman Catholic Church was the zombie body. And after 1,500 years of depravity and filth and ungodliness, it was losing, it was corrupting itself to the point where it was falling apart. The devil knew that. He comes up with the rebirth through the Renaissance by giving all these people these things, going to use it this way. What does God do? God takes that thing and he uses it for his honor and glory, and uses the change that comes into Europe to reintroduce the manuscript that comes out of Antioch that the Roman Catholic Church had for 1,500 years had suppressed that turned the lights out. Now we find during this period of time those Antiochian manuscripts coming back to the surface and the lights coming back on. 
It's just that simple. It's just that simple. And this comes about by the rediscovery of the writings out of the Byzantine Empire. That's where Antioch is in Acts chapter 11, Antioch of Syria. And when this people were sick and tired of the lies and the disillusions by empty promises and fed up with the corruption of the popes and the priests, they were ready for a new birth in more ways than just learning. And boy, God was waiting right there at the door. And this is what happens. Like I said, this period is a lot of things coming together. This is why it's my favorite time in history. This is a, we've had a lot of things moving down through history. Now they're all coming together and they're all mixing together. And they're going to explode into the Reformation. And we see a guy by the name of John Wycliffe. We talked about him a little bit, 1320 to 1384. He's called the Morning Star of the Reformation. He translates the first Bible into English off the text of, of, uh, of Antioch. He's hated by the Roman Catholic Church. His books are banned he was thrown in prison. 31 years after his death, the Roman Catholic Church hated him so much because of the problems that he caused, the things that he taught, they dug up his bones and burned them uh, along with all of his books. But as the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11, the word of God does not return fo fo uh, void. And the, reformers and the reform Reformation was on the way. We talked about John Huss. We talked about him in detail, 1369 to 1415, and the Hussites in Czechoslovakia. One of the greatest men during this particular time, and there's probably more written about this guy than any other man in church history, is Martin Luther. Martin Luther is somebody you'll want to remember, but you want to understand about Martin Luther, because everything you read on Martin Luther uh, is, gives the wrong impression. Uh, he lives 1483 to 1546, and he is, he is the guy who starts the Reformation, which starts in Germany. And uh, he's ordained a priest in 1507, but he's not satisfied with all the filth in the church. Martin had an inner desire for a personal relationship with Christ that he could never find within the Roman Catholic Church. One day he's reading the Bible, and he's reading in the book of Romans. And he reads in Romans chapter 117 that the just shall live by faith. And that's the verse that God used to win the man to Christ that was going to lead Europe in a re reformation against the Roman Catholic Church. I cannot tell you how badly he was hated. I cannot tell you all of the things that he had to go through to, uh, to do what he did. But... Uh, after his salvation, he became stronger and bolder in his preaching. In 1515, he walked up to the church in Wittenberg, that'd be Wittenberg, Germany, and nailed his, what has been commonly called his 95 Thesis to the door of that church. That 95 Thesis was basically, a thesis is something you write, you do them in high school or college. There's 95 theses was basically 95 teachings against what the Roman Catholic Church said a man had to do to go to heaven. And he nailed them to the door of Wittenberg Church. I've been in Wittenberg, Germany. I stood at the very door where he, he nailed that thing to that church door. And uh, he challenged them to debate him. And um, he was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. 
He was brought up on charges of heresy uh, at the German Council of Worms in 1521. But that's where he made his absolutely incredible, brilliant defense. He was condemned to death by the Edict of Worms. But he escaped to the Wartenburg Castle. And Martin Luther is the founder of the Lutheran Church. Now, the thing that you want to remember about this Martin Luther, and there's a lot written about him, and in my way of thinking, you have to keep it all in balance. I'm not saying he wasn't a great guy. And I'm not saying that God did not use him. He certainly did. But one of the things you got to remember about Martin Luther, that his strong point was his preaching and not his theology. This is something that, that young men can't get. And I don't, I, I don't understand why they can't get it. Uh, maybe it's because, I don't know why it is. I, I, I see it like a heartbeat, but maybe that's just me. I don't know. But you're going to find, as we look at these guys, and you even find it today, you're going to find some preachers who, who are, are really great preachers. Uh, you're, you're, you're television preachers. You're radio preachers. You're evangelists. You take Billy Graham in his heyday. Billy Graham was one of the most effective preachers you have ever met in your life. Billy Graham was a great preacher. But if you set Billy Graham down and open up the Bible and try to have him run it through from Genesis to Revelation, he couldn't find his way around that Bible. His life depended on it. If you put a pistol to his head and told you to show him the three come-up hitters in the Bible, he would get his brains blown out because he wouldn't know where it's at. You know why? His strong point was preaching, not theology. This is a thing that you see that you've got to understand. You'll find that there are guys who have a, you, who have a good basis of theology. We, we see the guys back there uh, like uh, Larkin. Larkin has good doctrine. He writes great books. He, he lays out great doctrinal things. Larkin couldn't have preached his way out of a wet paper bag. You find Arthur Pink. Arthur Pink got right book, Gleaning in Exodus, Gleaning in Genesis. His stuff is some of the greatest devotional stuff you'll ever find in your life. Arthur W. Pink knew nothing about the doctrine of the Bible. You're going to find the great radio guy, J. Vernon McGee, Oliver B. Green, guys that were before most of your time, but they were great radio preachers, and they really, really did a great job preaching the plain message of salvation over the radio waves, but they had absolutely no concept of how the Bible goes together. My point is this. God used these people and I'm not taking that away from them. But because they did not have a doctrinal base, they all got screwed up someplace along the line. You're going to see it in a moment. You, if you're going to really be effective, if you're going to be effective, you have to have the best of both worlds. You have to work at being able to preach the Bible, but you better know the Bible and what you're preaching. A good preacher, a good Christian will have a balance between what he says about the Bible and what he knows about the Bible. You're going to see that as we come through here, but I want you to remember that. We have a guy by the name of Alterick Zwigli, 1484 to 1531. He's a very important too. He was born in Switzerland. He helped lay the foundation for the Swiss Reformation. You've got to remember that when the Reformation broke out in Europe, 
you, you get different parts of the Reformation labeled by different countries. Martin Luther, he brought about the German Reformation. So from Martin Luther comes what we know today as the Lutheran Church. There's another one for you. Zwigli is in Switzerland. And in Switzerland, another Reformation breaks out based on Luther's Reformation. In other words, Luther was a guy who got everybody rolling. And once he kicked the door open, everybody got on the bandwagon. And Zwigli was in Switzerland. And he helped lay the foundation for the Reformation in Switzerland. He was a Roman Catholic parish priest, but became disenchanted with Rome. He began to preach against Rome in 1522. He makes an open break with Rome after reading the works of Luther. Luther had a tremendous influence on everybody. Later, he reformed, uh, uh, he, uh, he removed relics and images and, and, and organs from the church and centered the service around Bible preaching. He fought an armed combat with Roman Catholics and died in battle with a sword in his hand in 1531. We have William Tyndale. William Tyndale, 1494 to 1536. He's also a Bible translator and early reformer. He's ordained a priest in 1521, having studied at Oxford. When once questioned by Bible scholars about his soul-winning techniques, he looked out the window and saw a plowboy plowing the field. And he responded to them that in three years, this plowboy will know the scriptures better than all the learned men in England. He's also influenced by Luther and follows the natural break with Rome. He carries on with Wycliffe's work, and he translates, he translates the uh, Bible into the second English translation. And when the King James translators sit down to translate your Bible in what we know today as the King James Bible, they had Tyndale and Wycliffe's Bible sitting on the table, they had the old Latin of the Waldensians. They had the text of Erasmus. 95% of your King James Bible is based on Tyndale's Bible. That's the impact that he had. He preaches and translates until he's betrayed by a close friend. He's thrown into prison. He's tried for treason. He's found guilty, and he's strangled to death, and his body is burnt. I think his death is one of the most incredible things that show you what God is going on that is lost to church history. But to me, when I saw it many, many years ago, it, I've never forgotten it. Changed my life. Got two or three sermons I preach on it. When they're ready to strangle him, his last prayer, and now remember now, he's strangled during the, in England, under Bloody Mary's regime. And when he's strangled there, his last words, his last word is the prayer. He knows what the Roman Catholic Church is. He knows what the world needs. And he knows what the right Bible is out of Antioch because that's what he translated it from. When he's dying, his last breath, he utters a prayer. And the prayer is, oh, dear God, open the king of England's eyes. Seventy-five years later, God answered that prayer. And the king that was on the throne in England was James I. And God opened his eyes, and James I became the fulfillment of Tyndale's prayer and brought forth the King James Bible from England, 
that went to the whole world. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. My favorite time period. So much going on. You have John Calvin. And John Calvin uh, was born in France, but he later moved to Switzerland. 1509 to 1564. And he picks up where Zwigley leaves off when he's killed in 1531. From Calvin comes the Presbyterian Church. That's another one you need to add. His works called the Ecclesiastical Ordinances and the Institute of Christian Religion was the foundation of that particular church. He was a contemporary of Martin Luther for 30 years. It's Calvin who is, again, a reformer. But you want to remember that these guys, and this is what you got to remember. This is how you got to keep it straight. These guys are reformers, and these guys are used of God to break the back of the Roman Catholic Church. But these guys are not Bible believers. These guys are not part of the true line. You've got, this is where every writer of church history, because they do not use the Bible for church history, gets off the track. These guys are not Bible believers. They're not part of the true line. God used them because they were in Europe, and he used them to break the back of the Roman Catholic Church so that the people who were really doing the job could get to the end of the world. I'm going to show you how it works here in a moment, but don't run out of time. John Calvin produces one of the greatest heresies the world has ever seen. We know of it as Calvinism. And John Calvin, he would kill Bible-believing Christians just like the Catholic Church would. And, of course, John Calvin had no, uh, he had no love for the Waldensians or the Albigensians or the Anabaptists, which most of them were called by this time. John Calvin wanted to set up the Presbyterian Church in Switzerland, much like the Roman Catholic Church had been set up in Rome. John Calvin had the idea that he would set himself up as the church head of the church, i.e., the pope, for the Presbyterian Church, just like the pope was in the, uh, uh, in the Catholic Church. Most people who follow Calvinism are very stupid people when it comes to the Bible. I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean that in a true way. Most people who follow Calvinism's teaching, they don't have a clue. They know nothing about church history. They know much, not much about the Bible. They know three or four words, four or five verses in the Bible, and uh, they have no clue. They have no clue that uh, John Calvin uh, started Calvinism, and he lives in 1500, which simply means, ladies and gentlemen, that the teaching of Calvinism was not known for 1500 years. It came up with him. That's why they call it Calvinism. It started with him. Now, it's re- resurrected its ugly head today in the last 30, 40 years, and most men who were once Baptist are, are now messed up in it. And they've changed the name, but even in changing the name, they... they kill themselves because now they call it Reformation theology. Reformation theology means it started with a Reformation. Well, the Reformation was 1,530 years after Christ died on the cross and after the church at Antioch was established that did not teach anything that they taught for 1,530 years later. But you got to be, you got to have some brain cells left to figure that out. You'll find that he builds his system on five principles. You'll find that the Roman Catholic Church is built on five principles. You take the Roman Catholic Church, it's built on the Mass, it's built on the Eucharist, it's built on the sacraments, it's built on the Catholic Church, and it's built on the orders. Five things that you cannot find anywhere in the Word of God. 
And yet that is what the Roman Catholic Church is built on. It's built on five absolute principles that you couldn't find in the Bible with a laser beam and a flashlight. When Calvin starts his church, he builds it on five things that you can't find in the Bible anywhere either. Limited atonement, irresistible grace, unconditional election, total depravity, perseverance of the saints. You don't find those terms anywhere in the Bible, anywhere, shape, or form. Uh, they're just not there. People fail to understand that, that uh, his favorite uh, theologian was, of all people, God help us, Augustine, the great philosophical, philosophical teacher of the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, that makes sense. It was Augustine that wrote City of Our God there, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. It was Augustine that wrote in the book City of Our God that Rome was predestined to take the place of all other churches, the nation of Israel, and run the world. So when Calvin read Augustine, followed him in everything that he did, he read his book. He just took that concept and twisted it around a little bit and took the concept of predestination from the Roman Catholic Church, repackaged it, and put it in the Presbyterian Church. That's all it happened. You've got to really be a, an idiot to believe in Calvinism. I mean, that's down there somewhere with a Jehovah Witness. I mean, John Calvin is an incredible idiot. And, uh, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. John Calvin, I mean, how would you, I mean, I wouldn't take a church started with John Calvin anymore than I'd take a church that started with Henry VIII. You know, if John Calvin really believed what he taught about salvation, John Calvin, the great reformer who broke the back of the Roman Catholic Church, who followed Luther, you realize he's in hell tonight? Because he believed in baptism for salvation every day of his life. People have a time of when they don't know the Bible. We have the great John Knox. We have a village named for him right down the road here, John Knox Village. And uh, John Knox Village is started by the Presbyterian Church because John Knox was a Presbyterian, 1513 to 1572. He's ordained a Catholic priest, but was won to the Lord by a street preacher. He was burned at the stake for his preaching, the guy that went into Christ. He gets under the influence of John Calvin and eventually starts the first Presbyterian Church of Scotland. Now we move from Switzerland to Scotland, you see. Now, John Knox was a great preacher, and uh, he preaches hell, fire, and damnation. He's the only man alive that ever preached hell, fire, and damnation. I got a picture at home in one of my church history books where he's pre uh, the painting is him standing before Bloody Mary, and he preached the hell out of her and lived to talk about it. Now, that in itself is a feat. He fe preached hell, fire, damnation to Queen Mary of Scotland, Bloody Mary, Queen of England, and survived. He was a hard preacher. It is said of him, here is one who never feared the face of man. He's an incredible preacher. Again, his strong point is not doctrine. And these are the men of the reformers who God used, who were in Europe, who were never part of the true line, but God used them to break the back of the Roman Catholic Church so the true line could do what God called them to do. Now we have another one here, and this is a good one, uh, Erasmus of Rotterdam. Now Erasmus is a guy that you uh, probably don't know much about, but I can just tell you this, that uh, he starts out, nobody knows for sure when he was born, somewhere around 1466. He was the illegitimate son of a Catholic priest through the corruption that we had talked about last week. 
He taught in all the biblical languages and classical literature. At the Augustine Monetary in Stein, Germany, he received his doctorate in theology at 26 in Paris. He was a humanist in his thought, as most Catholic priests were at that particular point, till he read the works of, you might guess it, Luther. He was converted at some point in his study uh, on Luther's position, the just shall live by faith. Now, the difference between Erasmus that you want to remember and the other reformers is this. And this was his downfall. Erasmus, where all the other reformers came out of the Roman Catholic Church, Erasmus tried to reform the Catholic Church by staying in it. And by doing so, he violated one of the great principles of the Bible. And it's a principle that uh, gets violated many, many times today. Let me tell you something. The rule of this in the Bible. If you're going to a church, and that church is a dead church, and that church has dumped the Bible, and that church is in apostasy, and they're not teaching the Bible. Your job as a child of God is to get as far away and out of that church as fast as you can. The idea that you're going to stay in that church and change it around is a fallacy that will never happen. Martin Luther couldn't do it. Erasmus didn't do it. Zwigli and all of the other boys and Calvin couldn't do it. They all knew that the only way you could get out of it, deal with it, was to get out of it and start it over again because you can't go back and fix it once it goes into apostasy. And uh, he paid a hard price for it. Though Luther was a guy that really, in his writings, led him to Christ, in time, Luther turned against him. And Luther turned against him because of the fact that he would not, uh, he would not uh, come out of the Roman Catholic Church. And, of course, uh, he wrote something called the Aximoto, which is 22 short biblical statements that support Luther's position. And what he gave us is probably one of the greatest things that God used at this particular point. And what we do here is we see God using men within the system who had the ability to do what God needed to be done, but they're never part of the true line. Erasmus was never part of the true line. But what Erasmus did is he wrote the Greek text from which the King James Bible comes from, which in time becomes, as we know it, the Texas Receptus. Now, the word Texas Receptus means received text. Erasmus knew that the Greek manuscripts out of Antioch and Syria were the right manuscripts. And, of course, he uh, translates a Greek New Testament. That Greek New Testament becomes the basis for uh, the King James Bible that we have today. And without that, we wouldn't have anything. He severely persecuted and criticized it. I think he turned the Greek New Testament, believe it or not, I think he turned the Greek New Testament out in 30-some days. And that's, I, I can't even tell you what that is. That is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And of course, he was quickly denounced by the Roman Catholic Church uh, as being full of errors. And uh, Erasmus was a, was a great guy. The king of England and five other countries offered him any position other than king if he would just come and live within their country. And that was a pretty tough deal to get. And uh, when he translated his Bible into, into Greek uh, and came up with the Greek New Testament, it was, uh, it was almost an impossible task. 
I think I said 30 days, but I think it was longer than that. Now that I think about it, I think it was something like six months, which is still phenomenal. You can't do it. I mean, you realize what you're doing when you're translating, uh, some, making a Greek New Testament out of all that. Incredible. And of course, what happened was they led a charge against him that it was full of errors, which no error has ever been proved. One of the things that they criticized him on was the fact that uh, uh, when he wrote the, translated the book of Revelation, he didn't have, uh, he didn't have the Greek text that had Revelation chapter 22, verse 14 in it. If you don't know what verse that is, that's the verse that talks about the tree of life, which is missing from Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. The only text that that in is in Erasmus's text, which comes off the text out of Antioch. And they criticized him because uh, what he did was is that he didn't have the Greek text, so he went back to the old Latin out of the Waldensian Bibles, and he transliterated it from that, from the, from that to the Greek, and, uh, and then he put it in because he knew it was supposed to be in there. He didn't have the Greek text. And that's a true statement. But they criticized him for that. But the issue was, and still is today, when you get hit with that by somebody that thinks they know what they're talking about, that the King James Bible was not done uh, off his first edition. The King James Bible was done off of his fourth or fifth edition. And when he had, by the time he did the fourth and fifth edition, he had the Greek manuscript, and when they checked his translation from the old Syriac into the Greek, it exactly matched exactly what it should have been from the Greek going Syriac into the Greek to the text itself, right on the money. So he was an incredible guy. And uh, he's the one who basically sets the text for all of this. Now, as I said before earlier, and you want to remember this, when dealing with the Reformation, these men, Luther, Calvin, Fox, Erasmus, Wigley, and all of them, um, one must remember that they do not make up the true biblical line. This is very, very important. In fact, in each case, the true line who supported the Reformation, uh, the groups that we had talked about uh, before, uh, by this time, they're basically all called Anabaptists. There are no more Waldendians anymore, Huguenots or Paulicians. Now, by this time, they're pretty much all called Anabaptists. And they were looking for relief of the bitter persecution of the 1,500 years from Rome. And what they found out very quickly, this is why they didn't have a lot to do with the reformers. When we look back in history, and you've got to put it in perspective, we get the idea that the Waldendian and the Anabaptists were going around having lunch with Zwigley and, and those guys. That's not true. They found out very quickly, not only were they being persecuted by Rome, but they found out that these reformers, with the exception of Luther, would burn them at the stake just like Rome would. So you've got to put this in perspective. You've got to see what God's doing. And by this time, we've got this. You've got to have these down now. Here's what we've got. And these guys must be understood for who they really are. For when reading the writers of church history, we're losing a translation what really is taking place with these people. What we've got is this from these reformers going all the way back. We saw how the Roman Catholic Church split off of the, off of the true biblical line back there in 325. Then we saw around 800, the Greek Orthodox come into being. Now we've seen the Church of England, which also becomes the Anglican Church and the Episcopal Church. 
We saw Luther bring about the Lutheran church. We saw Zwigli and Knox and Calvin bring about the Presbyterian church. These groups splinter off down the line into Puritans, Separatists, and Congregationalists. These churches come all come from Rome, see? This is very important. These churches are all called Protestants. They're called Protestants because the word Protestant means protester. They protested Rome, therefore they broke with Rome. And, you know, we, jump, we lump them all together and we think that, you know, that the, the Anabaptist and the real Bible-believing line in these groups got along. That's not true. These groups came out of Rome. God used them to break the back of the Roman Catholic Church, but there isn't one of these churches, there isn't one of these groups in any way, shape, or form that ever left the continent of Europe to go around the world. God used them for what they were at the time that they were to break the back of the Roman Catholic Church so that the real Bible believers could get to where they needed to go. You've got to see that. You got to see that. There is no question that they leave the Roman Catholic Church because of its corruption, and nearly all see the error of the Greek manuscripts involved. Every one of them, even Calvin. But the thing that you and I have to see as a Bible believer that all of these groups only partially leave Rome. They all state that the Bible is the only authority for the Christian, but in practice, everyone dumps the Bible when it crosses the tradition of the true church on the non-essentials, and they all do it. Martin Luther, as with the Presbyterians, even though Martin Luther was saved as I am and believed it, and the, and the early Lutheran church followed him, they still all baptized babies. All with the exception of Luther will kill Bible-believing Christians. They all come from Rome. They all keep a Nicolaitan priesthood in some various form over the common people. They all keep the unpractical pra uh, practices that Rome uh, have, like they all have some kind of form of the sacraments. And consequently, the rule of the Bible comes into play that's found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, that simply says, a little leaven, leaven the whole lump. And even though they break with Rome and they're, and they're fundamentally secure in teaching and preaching the Bible, because they don't break with all the traditions of Rome, what happens in time, that thing swallows them back up. And the Presbyterian Church today, the Lutheran Church, the Episcopalian Church, the Anglican Church, the Church of England, the Greek Orthodox are just as dead as, a, as, a, as can be today. They all came out of Rome. And now we see today that they've all went back to Rome. And they're all connected back together. The only ones who stay separate from Rome were the ones who were never part of Rome. And I can't tell you how important that is to understand that and to see that. And uh, it's one of those things that you know, anybody who can read the Bible and read history can clearly see that these groups did accomplish a great deal. I mean, there's no question about it. You've got to see how God used them, and he used them for what they were. The main work was being done and would be done by the unknown groups down through history that paid the price in their own blood. For the, uh, the four results of the Reformation in Europe. One, 
they broke control of a universal foreign dictatorship over the national groups of Christians, the Roman Catholic Church. They made a real dent in Rome's authority by putting the authority back to the Word of God over the popes and the pontiffs. They stimulated a capitalistic system where the middle and lower classes of people could keep a totalitarian system from getting control of them again. And most important, they brought about a revival of preaching from the text out of Antioch that opened up the translation of the Word of God that brought Europe from the darkness to the light. And in time, we're going to see it next time, kick the door wide open. Now, let me illustrate this thing to you as best I can. And here's how I do it. Here's what I do. it. I make it a football game. You want to understand the Reformation and all the players in it? Here it is. Here's the goalpost. The goalpost to represent taking the gospel of the world. Here's the Roman Catholic Church. There are the O's. They are the opposition. Then you have the reformers. They'll be the, they'll be the offense. They're the X's. Then you have the Bible-believing groups. That'll be the quarterback, your running back, and your split ends. They're here. Here's what happens. Reformation happens. Boom. Reformers block into the Catholic Church. Knock them off their log. Knock them out of the way. Every one of them hits them. The quarterback, that'll be Jesus Christ, flips the ball off to the tailback. He runs down through here. This guy here runs out this way, heading for the goal line, and he fakes the ball back to here. He passes, comes back here. He passes straight down to the line, and the Philadelphian church scores a touchdown, taking a King James Bible of the world. See how in position it is? These guys just blocked these guys. They didn't go anywhere. God used them to block the opposition so the real Bible believers could run an end run, flip, flea flicker, pass the ball, Statue of Liberty play, whatever you want to call it, and in a true Bible line, ran for the world to take them the gospel. That's all the Reformation is. It's as simple as that. You have the, you have the, you have the Reformers who block the opposition to Catholics, you have the Holy Spirit of God flip the quarterback down here to the, to the Bible-believing groups. They pass off to, the, to uh, this guy. He fires the ball down to the tight end who split around and run an end run, and it's a touchdown. And this touchdown here starts about 1,600, and this game goes on to about 1,900. And during this time, three-quarters of the world, three-quarters of the world, three-quarters of the world or one to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ with a King James 1611 authorized version. That's the Reformation in perspective. All right, well, we'll hold up there. That's a lot to grasp, but boy, you get that, you're on your way. I don't know what to tell you.